Let me remind you, uh, I need RSVPs by Tuesday for the banquet Friday night. Um, and all of you are welcome to come. There's plenty of room. Love to have you. I would say get it on my phone tonight, though, because um, I plan to be distracted for the next couple of days, focused on you know, the exploits of the George Bulldogs in the national championship game. So, um, if you just tell me, make sure I write it down. Otherwise, send me a text or email. Information's in the bulletin. Right? So, you ever hear a Dennis Miller comedy routine? No, he kind of. It used to be um, funnier when I understood him. He uh, do, he would do the weekend updates on Saturday Night Live, and those were good. But he started doing stand-up. I'm sure he had done it before, but I started hearing stand-up routines from him afterwards. And every time I'd hear him, I would feel pressured sort of to laugh, even though I didn't understand. You know, because he would make these deep allusions to things that I'd never heard of, and he respected us enough, I guess, to think that we would know what he was talking about, but I never did know. <laughs> so I'd like, you know, every time he would say something, I would think, oh, that's an inside joke. I kind of know what he's talking about, but I don't understand the illusion or the reference. And um, there are just layers to what he was saying that I couldn't unpack. The uh, Gospel of Mark is a little bit like that. You can understand what's going on when you read it in a cursory way, but there are layers there that um, are pretty deep. And the more you um, unfold them, the more you see that um, there's a lot going on here that you don't see on your first reading or if you don't understand the illusions that he's making. It's sort of like uh, we heard of a friend whose four-year-old was reading uh, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And I was thinking, you know... I'm, she sounded really enchanted with the characters and uh, events happening in it. But you're thinking someday she's going to have an epiphany moment reading The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and realize, oh, wait a minute, Aslan is Jesus. This really opens up new worlds for me. And Gospel of Mark can be a little bit like that for us when we read it. We've got a really short little passage tonight. But in it, you really have a compression of, of the whole story of the Old Testament. The story of the history of the world from its beginning until the time of Jesus, uh, packed into these little verses, and it's a little bit hard to understand. Um, we're going to try to talk about some of that. There's also a window in these verses into the deep mysteries of the Trinity, of God's existence as three persons in one God, and we're not even going to try to jump into that yet. There's a great Tim Keller sermon about that if you'd like to hear a good sermon on the Trinity from this passage, but you're not getting one from me tonight. Uh, but we are going to talk about why this information is significant for us. Why is it that all the gospel writers felt like we needed to know about these things that they happened? So let me pray for us and then we'll read and jump in. Father, please uh, help us as we consider your word. We ask that you know, as much as we're able that you would open our minds to you and also open our hearts to you that we might see your son for who he is and embrace him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, read with me beginning at Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. 
And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, Christ. So, the point I want you to get tonight is that uh, Christian faith is more about receiving than it is about resolving. It's more about receiving than it is about resolving. What we're given in the Gospels is less an example to follow and more a Savior to trust. Less an example to follow and more a Savior to trust. That's why they're called Gospels. Gospel means good news. It's, It's news about something that has happened. It's not advice about uh, improvement in your own life, fundamentally. It's news. It's a Savior to be trusted, not an example to be followed. Um, So, that explains a little bit why you get what you get when you read the Gospels. Because they're not exactly biographies. You know, you don't get all the interesting details about Jesus' childhood and his parents, and, you know, we're left with lots of questions about those things. We don't know much about what his carpentry life was like. Uh, in his 20s, uh, we pick up pretty much right at the beginning after his birth narratives, right at the beginning of his public ministry, um, because what's important for us to know is what he did more than even what he taught. Right? We're, the events themselves are what matter for us, what he has done for us. And when we do have teaching from Jesus, it's not like esoteric, abstracted wisdom or ethics. It's teaching that presses us to see what we need to receive. He's not just saying, I'm trying to drum up your resolve so that you can try harder to be spiritual and moral. He's saying, I'm teaching so you'll know that you need a Savior like me. So that you'll need the grace of God in your life as I'm presenting that to you. And so uh, that makes it very different from most any kind of religious approach. Um, Take, for example, Buddhism. uh, And I'm not pretending to know a great deal about Buddhism, and I hope I'm not creating any kind of a straw man in saying this. But, you know, Siddhartha uh, Gautama. Is that close? Okay, as far as you know, that's close then. this is uh, four or five centuries before the time of Jesus Christ. Um, you get a little bit of information about his life in Buddhism, but not much. Um, mostly what you get about the events of his life are, this is how he discovered you know, the path to enlightenment that he's recommending to other people. You, know, you get brief descriptions of what he experienced by looking at the suffering in the world and the joys in the world and how he came to respond to those things. But really, all you're getting is just what led up to the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. You know, his, uh, his teaching about how one becomes fully enlightened and eventually reaches nirvana. It's the path and the, you know, the Four Noble Truths that matter. It's not his life or the events of his life that matter very much at all to any the setting of the Buddhist faith, as far as I have been able to discern, right? So, um, 
it's the esoteric teaching, it's the philosophy, it's the ethic that is being pressed. It's the path to nirvana. doesn't matter what happened in his life very much at all. Um, but in Christianity, though the teaching of Jesus does matter, and the example that he sets does matter, it doesn't matter ultimately. What matters ultimately is what he did, who he is. So the events of his life, and especially the events of his ministry, are of central importance to us, and that's why that's what the gospel writers talk about so much. He's not giving us a ladder to climb for spiritual accomplishment. He's showing us our need of a Savior like him. So, again, main point here. Jesus is less setting us an example to follow and more showing us a Savior to trust. A Savior to trust. So, let's look at these two events that happen in this passage. The temptation of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. And I'm going to do them in reverse order because that put my mind better. So we'll start with the temptation, where he's led out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Matthew and Luke, the two other gospel writers, have a really long section about this, and they describe the nature of the temptations and how Jesus responded to those temptations. Uh, Mark basically just tells you that it happened. Right? He says the temptation happened, and doesn't even really write out much to say, and Jesus did well in the temptations. Right? He just says... The temptation happened. Uh, we're to assume that it went well. Um, but most people that talk about the temptation, you know, one, they, they deal with the mysteries of how is it that being fully God and fully man, how does temptation actually function for Jesus? Because you know how it is with you. You feel like anytime you're tempted, you feel dirty for being tempted. And that's not really a biblical view of temptation. But anyway, it's hard to figure out how someone who doesn't sin is tempted. But Jesus was tempted, we're told, like us. Most of the people, most of the commentators that talk about it, um, all say that, that his temptation, though, is really an echo back to the Garden of Eden and the original test of Adam and Eve. Uh, in the garden, not the wilderness, but in the garden they were given the test, uh, somewhat almost arbitrary, arbitrary, arbitrary seeming, uh, of the fruit of the tree they couldn't eat, even though everything else was available to them. And the test, in its essence, was, do you trust me? Do you think that I'm out for your good? Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, you will flourish if you live in relationship with me and trust me and obey me and follow my plan? And, of course, Adam and Eve failed that test, right? They listened to Satan when they were tempted, who said, no, God is withholding, and if you really want to be happy, you better run your own life and not submit to him. He is not out for your good, you better watch your own back, run your own life. Um, that'll be better. And they bought that temptation. You know, why wow, I can't imagine anyone falling for that temptation, right? They're just like us. Uh, everyone ever since would fail in our temptation. But Jesus comes as um, what the New Testament calls the second Adam. And he goes not into a garden oasis, but into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, faced with a similar test, will you trust me? The nature of the temptations in the other Gospels have to do with, will you follow God's path and plan for the rescue of the world, or will you go a different way, a shortcut way? Uh, but Jesus passes the test. He resists the temptations of the devil. He wins where Adam lost, and therefore is faithful. Really, his whole life is that test, you know, 
his whole ministry, he's, his, he is being tempted and tried and tested. You see all of the opposition of demons in the Gospels that show up when Jesus is there. Ultimately leading to the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death, when he is in anguish praying, Father, is there any other way? Can this cup pass from me? And uh, is told no. A test also of a tree, right? But that Jesus passed as he was willing to go to the cross for our sakes to rescue us. Right? So Jesus and Adam both fulfill strange roles for us that the theologians call federal headship. Federal headship. That is, they're representatives of their race. So that Adam's failure in the garden doomed us all. That because of him and his sin, we all find that we are not only prone to sin, but bent to it. Right? We bear even the guilt of sin by nature now because our federal head Adam failed. And Jesus, the second Adam is a federal head for us, and because of his obedience, uh, we find that we have life restored, our relationship with God restored, not because of something we've done, but because of something our champion did for us. Now, tomorrow night, Georgia and Alabama will play again, and uh, if we lose again, I'm going to say we lost. And if we win, and it's confetti time, I'm going to say we won. But I'm not strapping up any shoulder pads tomorrow night. Um, I'm not doing anything. But I'm represented by Kirby Smart and the mighty Georgia Bulldogs, the junkyard dogs. And, uh, and I identify with them in a way that is at least lightly analogous to federal headship in the Bible. <laughs> so, I don't do this to you very often. <laughs> if you are making up a religion and telling the story of the temptation of Jesus, this is what you would say. Jesus was strong when he faced temptation and he stared down the devil. You do that too. You should stare down the devil and be strong in the face of temptation too. And that's true. You should try to be strong in the face of temptation and resist the devil, as the Bible says. But this isn't a made-up religion. No one would make up this kind of a religion that says the point of the temptation of Jesus is that your champion has triumphed for you. And you benefit from his triumph as a gift of grace, not as an accomplishment of your own. That's the point of the temptation of Jesus. It's not this is how you can succeed. It's this is how your champion has succeeded. And you're urged to put your trust in him. Right? So the baptism, similar. The baptism is unusual. All four of the gospel writers include the story of Jesus' baptism. Why? What's, he, what's even happening in the baptism? It's a, it's a baptism of repentance, it says. Well, Jesus doesn't need to repent. He hasn't sinned. Um, what's he doing? Being baptized by John. Um, some people say, and so many people say this that I think there must be something to it. 
I don't, I don't really buy it that much. Some people say he's identifying with us. Knowing um, that because we're sinners and he's come to identify with us as sinners and die for us as sinners. Uh, he's beginning his identification with us by being baptized for repentance as we need to be baptized. Um, I don't think that's foolish, but I don't think it accounts for what's really going on in Jesus' baptism. I think what is happening in Jesus' baptism is his coronation, his anointing for his public ministry. This is the beginning of his public ministry. He's 30 years old, and he's entering into public life uh, as a priest and as a king and as a prophet in Israel. And kings and priests and prophets in Israel were anointed when they entered into their service. They had oil poured on their heads by one of God's representatives. And uh, that represented the Holy Spirit coming to help them and to fill them so that they could serve in these roles. Uh, If you watch The Crown, in in the first season of The Crown, Queen Elizabeth's coronation was in the fifth episode. Smoke and Mirrors was the name of that. When they anointed her to be queen, this is what the priest said as he put oil. He took oil and he said, be thy hands anointed with holy oil. And then be thy breast anointed with holy oil. And then be thy head anointed with holy oil. And then he said, as as kings, priests, and prophets were anointed, As Solomon was anointed king by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, so then be thou anointed, blessed, and consecrated queen over the peoples whom the Lord thy God hath given thee to rule and govern. Which is um, a very biblical uh, notion of anointing, applying it to a modern nation state. Not not so good, I don't think, but... um, (laughs) But the notion that prophets, priests, and kings were anointed by God and by his representatives to serve was commonplace in Israel and none. um, Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet. As it says in Hebrews 1, God spoke in our New Testament reading. God spoke in various times and ways and diverse ways in the past, but now has spoken to us finally through his son, Jesus who is himself called the Word of God, is the true and final prophet of God. Moses said, one comes after me who's a greater prophet than I. Um, He's the one to listen to, right? So Jesus comes as the ultimate prophet and is anointed as Elisha, anointed Elijah, prophet. And he comes to be the priest, the ultimate priest, as it says in Hebrews 1. He made purification for sin, right? So that Jesus comes both as the true priest for us who is our intermediary with God, also the victim uh, as he offers himself as the sacrifice. He is the ultimate priest and is anointed for that service. And then he's the ultimate king. It's like uh, King Solomon and David were anointed for their service as king. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate king. He says in Hebrews 1, has sat down on the right hand of the, of the Father's majesty. That's the place of rule in the world and of authority. He's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. His baptism is his anointing for these roles. And that's what's going on here. So what's happening is not so much Jesus setting us an example to follow, even though we are to be baptized when we become Christians. 
right? Um, but what's happening here is not him setting us an example. It's him entering in fully into his mission of rescue that he's come to fulfill. It's his anointing for this purpose. So, again, in these stories, what you see is not so much an example to be followed, but a savior to trust. Now, if you think about that and you're new to it, you, you might think, well, that's, that sounds easy, right? Um, following the example sounds really hard. Uh, as long as you're a whole lot like Jesus, God will love and accept you. You know, that sounds like a rough road to travel that none of us would make it to the end of. But if you say, no, you've got a Savior who's going to be your rescue and all that's required of you is that you put your trust in Him, that sounds easy. But if you notice that nobody else has ever made up a religion anything like that? Like nobody else, whether they're trying to be super strict or super loose, has ever made up a religion of grace where what we have and receive from God comes to us totally as a gift rather than as an accomplishment. Uh, Christianity does not lower a ladder for us to climb to heaven. Uh, Christianity has a Savior that comes down to us. And the reason that I think other people don't make grace uh, the central part of their religions when they make them up is that it's way harder. Because it's an assault on our pride and it stirs up our fears. If everything we have from God comes as a gift, um, it makes us so vulnerable. It takes so much control away from us. Uh, it takes away our pride. First of all, we, you know, Satan's line in Milton's Paradise Lost was, it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven, right? And I think all of us feel that that's fundamentally true. It's better for us to run our own lives even into the ground than it is for us to submit our lives to someone else. And if God's work in our lives is all gifts, when you submit yourself to Him, you can't have any conditions. Right? It's like, my hands are empty, please fill them and ask of me whatever you will. And that's terrifying, and it's humbling. That's humbling. Um, I don't, give me a ladder to climb. Give me something to do. Give me, give me something to contribute to this. Um, so I'll have some terms to bring to the bargain with God and Jesus says, no terms, no bargain. It's un unconditional surrender. It's all gift or it's nothing. And that's terribly difficult. And then it appeals to our fears, too. Because to receive this gift with empty hands and say, your will, not my will. Um, if you'll have me, you can have me. That means that you're willing to do what he wants when you disagree. That it's the best thing or the most pleasing thing, or the thing that'll make you really happy. In the Garden of Eden, you know, Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They thought, no, no, I, God, I, I, don't, I don't really think he's out for my good. I don't really think he's good. And I don't think it's very safe to trust him. If I trust him, he's going to be withholding. And that's what we all believe. So it's terrifying to have a religion that's all gift, because then you say, well, I'm going to trust that you really are good, and having, having given me your son, that you're not going to be stingy with me going forward. But every one of you know how terrifying it is to say that and really mean it. So it's not easier, but it's good. 
It's good because what happens to us when we trust a Savior instead of just trying to rigorously follow an example? When we put our trust in Jesus, we receive the love of God. And it's almost irreverent to say this, but in a similar way to the way that Jesus received the love of God when the voice from heaven came, when the heavens were rent in two, as Isaiah prophesied they would be, and begged for it to happen. But when the heavens were rent and God said, you're my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That now because of the gift of Jesus Christ, we live in that relationship with God. And he says to us, not because he's deluded about who we are, but because he's impressed with who Jesus is. He says, you now are my beloved child. And with you I'm well pleased. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not disappointed in you. I'm not angry with you. I love you, and I want you home with me. And that's amazing. You're never going to climb no ladder that lets you feel even a touch of that. It's beautiful. Go back to the Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama, Gautama, something. (laughs) Famous last words were these. Let the Dharma, which is the doctrine, and the discipline that I have taught you be your teacher. All individual things pass away. Strive on untiringly. Strive on untiringly. He set an example to follow. But Jesus didn't primarily set an example to follow. He became a savior to trust. And his last words before he died were what? It is finished. Let's pray.